0: Freddie Wood this is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Monty B.
1: And Christine O'Leary.
0: Hi, this is Kevin Vandal. Hi, this is Mayo. Hi, this is Brian Ezra. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan <laughs> Van <Basque> <laughs> man, Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Kreenberger. And this is Jerry Robinson.
2: Hey, this is uh, Will Percoccio. This is Adam Beachon, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast episode number 46. I'm your host Dustin and as usual we have with us...
0: You got Josh!
2: And this is Zach. And we are bringing you the latest comic news for the past two weeks as well as comic reviews for the past two weeks. And I say two weeks and I stress two weeks because we only have two weeks worth of comics to cover, so this will be probably not two hours long like the last couple episodes. We do have some news, we do obviously have some upcoming trade paperbacks to cover, as well as, and we have seven comics to cover. We have BBFB, which is a pretty important uh, story within the Batman universe, Death and a Family, also pertains partially to the upcoming DC animated film, Batman Under the Red Hood, so look forward to that later in the episode. So let's get into comic news.
0: What have you got for me?
2: The very first thing Thing we've got is on June 16th, David Hine talked to Newsarama about some various things having to do with his upcoming work on Asriel and Detective Comics. So there's a couple of things that were pretty uh, newsworthy that we're going to cover. So Zach will read for Newsarama and I will read for David Hine.
0: You obviously had a lot of knowledge about Jeremiah Arkham as you wrote his story over the last year. Have you done a lot of research on Azrael? Or were you pretty familiar with the character? What kind of research have you done, and will we see any elements of it in the story you're writing?
2: When Mike Martz offered me this series, I didn't know a hell of a lot about the character. I think the last time I read the book, some minor league artist called Joe was drawing it, and I've read and reread all the material featuring the Michael Lane character. The Battle for the Cow series, a couple of Batman Detective annuals, And of course, all the issues of Batman that feature Michael Lane as one of Dr. Hurt's replacement Batman. I also had all of Fabian size's scripts up to issue 9. I've been working on the story for a while now, and Fabian was months ahead with his scripts, so I knew where the story was heading. I've also contacted Fabian about some of his intentions for the character. There's a fascinating flash forward in the first issue of the current series when Azrael apparently dies at his own hand. Fabian threw that in from the start and that future event is hanging over the entire series. I will be getting to that scene eventually. I want to respect what Fabian was doing with the story and the character. He set up some fascinating possibilities and I don't want to abandon any of those subplots. So far, the readers who may have been worried that the death scene would never be explained have no fear. All will be revealed. I've restricted myself to the Michael Lane version of the character for now. I'm aware of the previous incarnation of Jean-Paul Valley, of course, but I don't want to overcomplicate things, at least not yet. For the moment, I'm exploring the way Michael Lane's sanity becomes increasingly fragile the longer he wears the suit of sorrows.
0: Let's talk about your upcoming Batman imposter story in Detective Comics. What are the themes you'll be exploring in this story?
2: Oh dear, more lunacy I'm afraid. The concept is kind of an exploration of the idea poised in the Dark Knight movie where in an early scene we see ordinary citizens dressing up as Batman and demonstrating total incompetence when they attempt to emulate their hero. In this new story we're we're taking that idea and running with it, starting off with the imposter Jokers. Or Jokers, as we prefer to call them. The whole thing starts off as a fairly harmless version of flash mobbing, where citizens meet up at prearranged locations, rip off their outer clothes along with their inhibitions to reveal homemade Joker costumes. They basically look crazy for a period. Their mood is enhanced with Joker juice, a watered-down version of Joker venom. And for a half hour, the juice induces facial distortions like the original Joker Venom, along with the sense of euphoria and hilarity, but without the unfortunate side effect of the original Venom. You don't actually die.
0: Who is the imposter? That's the
2: $64,000 question. He is the guy behind Joker Juice and the flash mob events, and he's also clearly pushing things to a higher level, so that things rapidly get dangerous and deaths ensue. Ultimately, he's looking for a total breakdown of the social order in Gotham. As to his motivation that will gradually be revealed as his is told in a series of flashback scenes, running concurrent to the events of the story. As the violence ramps up, imposter Batman appear on the scene as upstanding citizens become outraged by the activities of the Jokers, and don their own homemade costumes to go clean up the streets. And they aren't messing. They are toting an arsenal of deadly weapons, and their message is, the fun stops here. So... I gotta say, I'm I'm not looking forward to the Azrael stuff because, uh, no offense to Fabian, no offense to David Hine, I think Azrael's too far gone. I know they're gonna give him a couple issues to try to do something, but unless they change the artist, that that book will never it'll never go anywhere. But I am looking forward to this detective uh, comics uh, story arc because it does sound interesting. You know, despite the fact of two things that we we've, we've been. You know, bashing recently as far as you know, flashbacks during the middle of a, a story and uh, creation of new villains, it does sound very interesting.
0: Yeah, funny that you mentioned flashbacks in the middle of stories, because that's coming up again soon, this comic cast. Yeah, I think that this time next year, we're not going to be talking about Asriel in the comic cast, because this time next year, I'm thinking it'll be canceled. I'm surprised that over 50% of this interview, it felt like, was... About real which means that I guess the interviewer must have cared about it. So good for him. I'm glad somebody's enjoying the book or cares about what's happening in it. Because we're sure not detective comic stuff was intriguing, and I wish they would have uh, spent more time on that, though, so that we know what's going on with this Joker stuff. Yeah, the detective comics part of the interview is definitely pretty interesting, and these are some pretty bold ideas that he's throwing out here, so I'm interested to see where that goes.
2: And That issue of Detective Comics will actually hit. That'll be coming out next month.
0: You can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs.
2: All right, so that's going into the next bit of news. On June 23rd, you can now buy Digital DC Comics on iTunes. Very early in the morning of Wednesday, June 23rd, DC opened up a comic shop online. For months now, fans have been asking DC, when were they going to get into the digital market? Jim Lee mentioned, obviously, back at WonderCon, that uh, reading a comic book from the actual physical comic book has more meaning. And this put a lot of doubts into you know, a lot of people's heads of, okay, maybe DC doesn't really want to do these digital comics. Well, that obviously isn't the case, is you can actually go now onto iTunes, and for your iPod, your iPhone, or your iPad you can buy DC Digital Comics. And as far as the ones that they have for Batman, they have Batman 404, Batman 608 through 613, Batman 655 and 656, Batman Black and White, all five stories, and they're actually all free. The Origin of Batman number 1 which is also free, and Superman Batman number 1 through 10. Also, in addition to that news, uh, later in the day, DC Comics actually released a press release stating that uh, not only are they on iTunes, but you can also get these digital comics on the PlayStation Network. So, what do we think of digital comics?
0: I just downloaded it now. When we were queuing up our stories for the Batman universe, I went into iTunes, plugged in my iPhone. I downloaded it now. Uh, Marvel has their app, and Marvel's app was very, very clunky. You know, when it's reading comics on your phone, that's okay, but... It's not something I can see doing on a regular basis. If if I had to read comics on my phone when I was growing up, I probably never would have become a very big comic fan. It's just, you know, it's if you're a diehard fan, it's something that's okay to do, you know, when you're on the go, but... For a regular basis, I don't know. I mean, maybe it would be different for the iPad, but it might be just how our brains are wired. But, you know, you got to have the physical stuff in front of you. But the fact of the matter is the paper industry probably won't be here, you know, in 50, 60 years. So they do have to start looking at this digital stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's the future, and you're not going to fight it and win. I, I'm fine with digital comics. I think I don't have an iPad, but I've played around with them, and they do seem like a pretty... Competent digital reader, and I think that comics will work fine on them. Now I do think with with a phone, it's a lot more difficult. But yeah, I'm 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 all for them. Probably ex- expand the readership too.
2: Uh, I think it's a, I think it's a good idea, and I think yes, it's possible that it could expand the readership. The only thing that I'm seeing a problem with is if I go to the store and I buy um, Superman, Batman, any let's just say the most current issue, is Superman, Batman, Superman, Batman number seventy three. I pay two ninety nine for that. Um, eventually, if it comes to the point where digital comics are coming out the day of, which DC ha- does ha- did announce that they will have some uh, series coming out the day of in digital form as well as physical form, if I pay $2.99 at the store because I want my collection to have that comic, why would I then go online and pay $2.99 for the comic digital copy? The problem that I've always foreseen with the digital comics is, well, there's a couple problems. The first problem is that Comic collectors don't want a digital copy for their collection, they want a physical copy. Now, that could change in the future, but honestly, what is there really... When you say you have something on your computer, it's not like achievement. You haven't really achieved anything by having a song on your computer. You haven't really achieved anything by having a comic on your computer. So, ultimately, when you say, oh, I have 3,000 comics, it's not 3,000 files, it's 3,000 comic books. That's an achievement you've worked hard to either earn the money or to accumulate these over time, or somehow you've achieved getting all these comics. So I don't see that being the case. The other issue I see with it um, is that um, some people out there are very well aware that there are digital copies through torrent sites. These have been around for quite some time. We're going probably like, with they've been around for probably eight years now, and they're still around. Now a lot of those torrent sites are being shut down, And some of them are continuing on. And eventually they could all get shut down, but every time one of them shuts down, two small ones take the place of them, and they just keep going. And this has been the case ever since the days of Napster, and then Napster turned legal, and then LimeWare, and LimeWare's junk now. now, Then it was Pirate Bay, and now there's a ton of other sites out there. But the thing is, uh, you can get these digital copies for free. You might not get them the day of... Well, a good majority of the time, you're not going to get them the day of, but uh, you can get these digital copies within a week after they come out. So, if you're interested in getting a digital comic? It would be the same thing as people, you know, downloading music. How many people actually download music? The, everybody knows that the music industry's in a crisis because nobody's buying records anymore because everybody's getting it digital. Well, I can guarantee you that sales from song or sales from records, whether it be digital or physical copies are probably down over time because once things become digital they're they're out there and it doesn't have to be somebody doing it illegally anymore it could just be hey they're making this able to be used and then someone just has to distribute it so i see a problem with that
0: and i don't think i'd want to pay 199 to read a digital comic i would for a physical comic but and not for something that I'd be reading on a phone or an iPad or, like, a comic version of a Kindle. Like, maybe if they designed something specifically for the comic. And while Dustin was doing that whole thing, I went and downloaded Origin of Batman issue one on there and, you know, tried to read it, you know, flip through. And it's just really hard because you have to – you can't, like, get a view of a whole panel. It, like, zooms in on certain parts, then zooms around and – it's just a re- And I had the same problem with the Marvel app, too, and Marvel's been doing digital comics, not only on the phones, but, like, you know, a few years ago, they started a digital service in general, and it was lauded as the next big thing, even by myself at one point, I thought that that was, like, the future, but Marvel's been doing digital comics, you know, not on iPhones, but in general for years, and it hasn't really made a big splash, it hasn't, you know, like, changed the future of comics or anything like that, so... Until there's some like spec- comic-specific thing or Kindle-type thing, I-, I don't see this going anywhere. <laughs> and I know I sound like a dinosaur you know, who's not getting with the times, but that's just how I feel. With Marvel, though, their service, they don't release... Everything's really erratic, isn't it? It's like they have 20 issues of the Hulk from the 70s here, but then there's nothing before that or after that. They've had They've, exclusive digital series, though, like right, like... right, like Spider-Woman, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, and Spider- eventually, which eventually became... They, it went to print after, eventually. but
2: I mean, ultimately, I think, yes, it is the wave of the future, but if this is what determines whether or not, like Josh said, if, if this form of technology... Determines that we become dinosaurs Uh, This might very well be the point where I become a dinosaur and I consider myself pretty tech savvy You know, I try to keep up with the latest and greatest all the time But the reality of it is this is not something that I'm like super thrilled about It's nice to have a digital copy of a comic on your on your computer Especially if you're a comic collector and you want those books to be in good condition And you don't want to have to open them up every time you want to read it. That's convenience but do I want to pay $1.99, $2.99, 99 $0.99 for them? No. i download the free ones because they're free. But there's, you would not catch me paying you know, money for them. It, to me, that's it's not worth it. Especially when you know, they're finding ways of raising the prices of comics as it is.
0: What happens when, I mean, eventually, if it goes all digital and there's no print, they're going to force you to, to pay whatever they're going to charge you for those digital comics. I think by then though the digital comics industry will have will have evolved like so much exactly. like yeah that yeah. It, it won't be it won't be such a hard transition. I mean, newspapers are still around despite everybody saying forever that they're going to be gone. but if you look at newspaper sales throughout the last decades, I'm sure it's still going down, 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 down
2: um, I'm kind of interested to know if we compare comic book sales from ten years ago to now.
0: Oh, I, I, I've I, seen sales figures from 10 years ago and now. Yeah, it's... like I mean, the number. Well, th- well, I mean, look at it like this. The number one book at Diamond, when they released their numbers, is selling maybe 100,000 copies. So I mean... It's like 150. 150,000 is a lot for a comic book these days. Like, in the 90s and in the 80s, it was a lot more. But if you look at, yes, if you look at comic sales across the board from the last few decades, it's been going down steadily. The numbers that, like... Some of these bat books are having now. If they would have had those numbers in the 80s or 90s, they would have been canceled. My the whole ar- wait. Oh, oh go Digital ahead. comics is is that you know I guess because I'm I wait for the trade obviously with just about everything. They have to they have to test. This is like you know this is just starting and they're gonna test this market to see you know how much money are people willing to pay for a digital comic. And that's something they have to work with. That's something that I don't know Marvel if Marvel has exactly figured out how to do yet. And that's why it hasn't been exactly successful. They have to figure out there's a that price line between what the digital and then the print. Once they do that, I think the digital comics industry will increase. I think it's much more convenient in a sense to. I mean, people people are lazy these days. It's much easier to download it onto your computer and read it off your computer than it is to go. Buy the book at the store. And comic, comics, comic shops are also steadily, there aren't as many as there were 10 years ago either. So.
2: Okay, well, if we pull up the official numbers, we're comparing April's numbers because that's the latest numbers I've got on here. Uh, April 2010, the top book was Brightest Day with 129,446 issues sold. Brightest Day is number zero. Okay? And that price was three ninety nine a piece. Now, if we compare that to last year, number was one hundred four thousand one hundred copies of the top sale for that
0: book. What was that book? Do you know?
2: That was Detective Comics number eight fifty three.
0: Well, there's to me, there the difference there is, is that Brightest Day is a major event, and Detective yeah. Comics is Detective okay, Comics. Well,
2: speaking of that, uh, going back to April two thousand five, uh, the top book was New Avengers number five. And that had a order, uh, or that had number of the number for that was 162,000 copies. But if we go back 10 years, the top book for that month was Fathom Number 12 with 124. So it's the exact same as what we have now. When we go back to 1990, it's only 84,000 copies. So it actually has gone up over time. And it just has stayed steady within the last 10
0: years. How did Fathom number 12 sell under 20? I wonder what would happen if, like, we looked at other months, but we'd be doing this all day because I've heard from other people, like, much different stories about the industry and, like, you know, like, there was a boom in the 90s, but it did bottom out pretty quickly. I don't know. I think think trades... you You need, like, a sales analyst to come on here and, like, tell us. Trades have completely changed... The the single issue industry they killed they've killed back issues I know that um, there's also newsstand versus direct edition which right. I don't believe that newsstand exists anymore yeah i I remember when I was a kid you could go into convenient or anywhere and they would have a rack of comics you no know, it's now, funny that you say that it, now it's you can't you-, you don't see that anywhere now. Well, it's
2: funny that you say that because I actually went into like a, you know, a quickie mart, not a 7-Eleven, but like a quickie mart. Right. And I was buying a drink and I, as I'm walking out, I walk past the magazine rack and lo and behold, you know, it was on that rack, Friday's Day Number Zero. And I was blown away. I was like, a comic book in this? Now, I, I, when I was a kid, I remember, I remember there being comics at random places. I remember them being at the pharmacy. I remember them being at the grocery store. And I remember like my dad going grocery shopping and me walking over to the comic section and sitting there reading comics while he did the grocery shopping. I remember this you know, that's not the case anymore right so I was completely floored by seeing Brightest Day Zero inside a convenience store that had a magazine rack that maybe had uh you know a bunch of pornos and you know the latest gossip
0: magazine that you're also though you are in Chicago which. I believe is yes. the second largest market in the country for comp other than yeah. Seattle. All
2: right. So that's enough sales. <laughs> All right. So moving on to June 24th, uh, Adam Beechin sat down with comic book resources to talk about Batman beyond. Now, as we know, um, before, as we're recording this, Batman beyond number one is not out yet, but we're waiting for that two, two word, uh, story arc title. Uh, so we're going to cover a couple of questions. I will read the questions for comic book resources and, Josh will read for Adam Beechin. I know that for now you've been having fun keeping the two-word title of Batman Beyond arc secret, but the hook of the story in general is someone tracking down Bruce's old villains, and that's an area that the original producers never got too into outside Return of the Joker and the odd Mister Freeze appearance. Was part of your starting block the idea that using those villains was something that wouldn't have happened in the original run that you had a chance to play with?
0: Well, I shouldn't speak for the creators of the animated series, but my guess is that, just as they had reimagined Batman, they were anxious to reimagine what a Batman rogues gallery might be. And they were trying not to separate Batman Beyond from the legacy of the comic book, but enhance it. That's why the Jokers were a brilliant reinterpretation of what the Joker was all about and they were able to make the occasional nod to history by bringing back characters like Mr. Threes. One of the mandates of this miniseries that Ryan and I are doing was to tie the future, Terry McGinnis' version of the character, a little bit tighter to the present-day continuity of the Batman comics. Not in such a way that it's definitively the future of that character, but in a way that at some later date can allow someone to decide Batman Beyond was canon or was not canon. We're not definitively saying that in this miniseries... But I think that this ties Terry and Terry's future a little bit tighter to what Batman's all about than the animated series did. It just gives DC that option down the road if they want to. So consequently, we're seeing more Batman villains from comic book history show up in this miniseries than before. We're also seeing members of Terry McGinnis' rogues gallery show up as before. And we're having old villains from Batman's past reimagined in whole new ways. In the very same way that the Jokers were reimagining the Joker.
2: Were there any specific villains that you thought this is a villain I think will definitely survive over the years to make it to the
0: future? Of the old villains, it seemed to me that the ones that would most likely survive would be the ones that were the least bloodthirsty. Which isn't to say the bloodthirsty ones wouldn't survive, but I think the ones who would most likely make it through were the ones that weren't really all about murder and killing and maiming, the darker ones. So that brings into play characters like Signal Man, ha 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 ha, some of the goofier ones like that. Also, there's one very prominent member of Batman Rogues Gallery that never received any treatment in Batman Beyond, as far as I'm aware, and it seems like a ripe occasion to reimagine that character for this particular future, and that's something that we've had a lot of fun doing.
2: I hate to be a spoiler sport, but since the solicitations have hit, can I assume it's Catwoman we're talking about?
0: Yes, that's who I was speaking of. You saw through my clever, clever double talk. I hate solicitations, (laughs) ha ha ha.
2: Well, there's still a lot of mystery around this new version, and to me, the real dynamic from the original Catwoman was that sexual tension, forbidden romance aspect to her relationship with Bruce. Do you want to shoot for a similar tension for Terry?
0: What's pretty funny about that, I think, is that in the book, Terry is very, very aware of that history. So he's pretty psyched that now he's got a Catwoman to play with. Whether or not the new Catwoman feels the same way, has the same agenda, or knows the same history is a different matter. And that's part of the fun of the early issues of the miniseries. Let's just say that Terry's aware of all the things you're aware of and is wondering a lot of the same things. Will this be my Catwoman? It's like a tradition that's been passed down to him, but maybe not everybody's as into the tradition as he is
2: recently grant floated a different possible batman beyond future in batman number 700 with damian wayne playing bruce's role obviously he won't be playing that angle but is there an urge to work in some current story points into the future of this new series be it jason todd acting as the red hood or any other element of modern continuity
0: A little bit. Some of the stuff stays pretty fluid, but you know what elements are open to change more so than others. As far as the basics of Batman Beyond the Series, we know that Bruce was at one point retired, reclusive, and mad at the world. And we know that Terry McGinnis found him and took on the role. We know that those rules apply, but that doesn't preclude the idea that at some point there was a change in that dynamic. We don't know how long Terry was Batman and how long Bruce was shepherding him. We know that within the time frame, we can mix things up as we want, knowing that there is a status quo. Whether or not we do that, I don't want to get into, but there are fluid elements, even to the Batman Beyond mythology. What we do inside, that is the fun of the story.
2: So, Batman Beyond, you know, I am looking forward to it, because I am looking, you know, I like Batman Beyond, Uh, we talked extensively about Batman Beyond in the last, in episode 54 of the uh, Normal Podcast, and... Batman Beyond is an interesting character. You know, it's good to see him back in comics, and I hope this story is actually a good one, because maybe it will allow Batman Beyond to have some things down the line in the future and not, you know, go into hiding for the next five years like it did the last time it was around.
0: Yeah, I'm... I don't know if I'm going to be picking this up, because I don't really... I've never really cared about Batman Beyond that much. I mean, I've in, I enjoyed Return of the Joker and the occasional episode of the miniseries, but I never really had too much investment in the character. But I am really curious about this two-word story arc that's supposedly going to blow us all away. Yeah, I'm intrigued. I'm a little concerned about what's going on with Catwoman here. But I will say that Adam Beechin seems to uh, be pretty excited about this whenever a writer is this involved I guess in what he's writing I tend to be pretty interested so it's kind of a wait and see and
2: So that is all of the news we've got for this episode. So let's move into our upcoming trade paperbacks. There's only one trade paperback coming out in the next two weeks, and it comes out on July 14th, and it is Batgirl, Batgirl Rising. And this new title, collecting the first seven issues of her hit series, Stephanie Brown, formerly known as The Spoiler, takes on the new guys as Batgirl and becomes the target of both Gotham City's heroes and villains. It'll be 176 pages and be 17.99. All right, the first one we're going to be covering is the Joker's Asylum, at Mad Hatter.
1: You're mighty in Gotham, Batman, but in Wonderland, the Mad Hatter reigns supreme. <laughs>
0: Joker's Asylum, The Mad Hatter, written by Landry Walker, with artwork by both Keith Giffen and Bill Sienkiewicz. We open in the Joker's cell at Arkham Asylum, where he begins to tell us his new story. We then cut to Gotham's lorry side at the home of Jervis Tetch. He explains through his inner mo- monologue that he is writing a book. He then opens the book, which is entitled A Mad Tea Party by Jervis Tetch. We then see Tetch peering through the window of a convenience store p- looking at a woman. He explains that he does not know her name, We must wait until later to find all that out. We cannot skip ahead in his story. He explains how, with his mind control devices, how easy it would be to make her love him, but it would be meaningless. The word T then continues to repeat through Tetch's head, and he then says that he cannot make someone love him without the hat and the T. We then cut back to the convenience store where Tetch continues to question himself about this woman, and it's driving him crazy. It appears that Tetch is trying to avoid the Mad Hatter persona by marking everything in his apartment with sticky notes. He begins to make tea, but then refuses to drink it. He says he must be strong for his Alice, referring to the girl at the store. He finally learns her name, and it is not Alice. It is Catherine. At his apartment, Tetch goes into a violent rampage, and he doesn't know who she, how she could do this to him. How could she not be his Alice? Tetch breaks down and puts the Mad Hatter costume on and begins to drink the tea. And as he drinks, he transforms. We then see him having a tea party with a mind-controlled Catherine. He explains to her his story and that her hair must be cut. He then grabs a hold of a butcher's knife and goes to a race. Catherine, when Batman appears, and puts a stop to Tetch. However, Catherine, still under Tetch's mind control, begins to fight back at Batman, and Tetch makes for the getaway, explaining that this is not how his story should have ended. This is all wrong. Tetch opens the door where he. we see several bodies of... ...women fall on top of him. Batman then confronts Tetch, and he begins to cry and realizes he has made a terrible mistake. We then see the Gotham police searching Tetch's apartment while he lies strapped to a stretcher. He says he's going to be stronger and rewrite his book. Then cut back to the Joker at Arkham, who explains that he knows all this because he stole Tetch's book yesterday. Then see a bug on Joker's forehead and he grabs a book and smashes it into his head, killing the bug, and he begins to laugh. And that is the end of Joker's Asylum The Mad Hatter. I'll cut that cowl off your neck before you'll take her. I've waited my whole lonely
1: life for her.
0: Then all you've waited for is a puppet. A soulless little doll.
1: It didn't have to be this way. You made me do this to her. <laughs>
0: But wait, there's more, because now we have Joker's Asylum, Harley Quinn, and we get this whole framing thing that we've had in some of these Joker Asylum books. Joker sitting on a little throne with a poppy, saying that he's going to tell us the story of Harley Quinn. Oh, this puppy that I'm holding? Well, wait till the end of the book. We start off, this is taking place at one point in the past, because this is when Harley and the Joker were still together, and when she was still an Arkham inmate, as opposed to her current status quo now. She escapes from Arkham with very little ease, with Dr. Arkham following her, saying, Why are you doing this? And she's like, Don't you know what day it is? I have to be with the Joker today, as she jumps off the cliff by Arkham saying, Happy Valentine's Day. Harley goes to the Joker's current hideout, which is a YMCA, and ready to celebrate Valentine's Day with the Joker, but to see that the place has been ransacked and that the only person left is one of the Joker's henchmen, Spider. They say that Falcone's men came in and took the Joker. Kind of surprised me. I think that the Joker could take some mobsters, but whatever. Well, Spider goes and shows Harley Quinn, something that the Joker's been stockpiling in the back room, and it's lots and lots of guns. Harley finds out from Spider where the Joker's being held, and she goes to where the gangsters are basically auctioning off the Joker, and whoever pays the most money gets to do whatever they want to the Joker, shoot him in the head, abuse him, whatever. Harley shows up, demands that they hand over the Joker, and the auctioneer says, What are you going to do, hit me on the head with a mallet? To which she responds by shooting him, which I thought was funny, unfortunately. That joke's going to be reused a lot of times. She makes quick you know, work of the whole room and demands to the auctioneer who's still alive after being shot. He tells her that the Joker's being held at a warehouse nearby. So she says, I'm only going to let you live if you order some of the best wine and send it to the place that you kidnapped the Joker from. She had previously told Spider earlier in the evening to get some chocolate ready. So, yeah, she's still preparing this whole romantic evening. She's hoping that there's not going to be any complications, but when she goes outside, she sees the cops have barricaded the place. Uh, They do the whole, Joe, oh, what is she going to do? You know, hit us on the head with something silly. And then she takes out one of those guns that Spider gave her and uses it against the cops, causing some explosions. She then hijacks a cop car, goes to the warehouse, where the men are holding the Joker. And they do the whole tired joke by this point. Oh, what are you going to do? Get me with an acid flower? To which she actually does that and says, yeah, for once you got it right. The Joker's supposedly in the next room. So when she goes in, she sees that the chair that the Joker was tied up in is apparently... You can see that there's been a struggle and that there's nobody in this chair. Batman's in the corner, and he says that he's been following Harley all night and how he's not going to fight her because he knows that she'll beat him tonight because she's just that powerful after everything that she's done. But that he took the Joker, he put him back in Arkham Asylum, and if she wants to spend Valentine's Day with the Joker, she needs to come with him. And that all that romantic stuff that she's been preparing all night was like the dinner and the chocolate has all been sent to their cells. So Harley surrenders and that's the end of the story and the Joker says well remember why I had this puppy here the whole time it was to prove to you that even cute things can be dangerous and then the puppy has like somebody's scalp in his mouth and blood and the Joker says I think I'm gonna keep him lame call me don't press your luck
2: all right, so that's going to move us to Batman Streets of Gotham number 13. So we pick up where the last story left off, where the carpenter is pretty much apprehended by the two of the director's henchmen. And uh, she's after she figured out that she was going to be used as uh, basically a test dummy for the traps that she was creating for Batman, uh, she makes quick work of these guys um, with a stapler and a hammer. And the director comes in and starts yelling, cut, 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 basically... Tells her, we're running behind schedule, what are you doing? And then the guys say, well, we found her in your office. He says, you know, we get back to work. So she says, you know, if this is the way I'm going to be treated, I'm just going to leave. And she, as she's about to leave, they tell her, no, uh, we're going to give you a big bonus when this all gets over and done with. We then cut to Wayne Tower, where Alpha is holding a board meeting with uh, Tommy Elliott. And not a bunch of people, a board meeting, but an actual bunch of heroes, including Zatanna... Red Robin, Huntress, Black Canary, Metamorpho, Owlman. Basically, uh, Alfred puts out that uh, he's a little upset that Tommy Elliott has tried to dismantle Wayne Enterprises, including closing down three of Wayne R&D divisions. And Alfred says, you know, I I opened them back up. You're going to be going to dinner with... uh, Mr. Rex Mason tonight. Uh, Rex makes a comment about how they're going to be around a bunch of cougars. Well, maybe actually there'll be some panthers. We cut back to the carpenter who's finishing up and she is planning on creating some traps for the director and his little crew. uh, Making sure that she can have a way out and that she can take care of them. Um, As they wrap it up, the director is about ready to start his thing. And he sends out this billboard truck that says coming soon. It's a Bat symbol that's covered with blood. Uh, very reminiscent of Death of Superman. The truck plows into a wall and actually blows up. And the director films the entire thing and sees Batman show up. Gets out everything he needs when Batman sees this hat. The director realizes that the hat is actually the Carpenters. And she's trying to warn Batman. So she is... So then we cut to her and she's trying to escape the theater that they're in and a bunch of the henchmen come after her and she has various traps set up for them. Then Batman shows up and goes through a couple of the death traps, has no issues whatsoever with them. The carpenter actually helps uh, Batman take out one of the henchmen by using one of the traps that she set. The director puts a gun to the back of the carpenter and says, you know, I could have made you a star... You know, I really could have, you know, made you somebody. She says, you know, I don't really need to be somebody. And then he says, well, that's okay because we're going to put you into the, I'm going to drop the trap door and you're, you're going to fall into the pit of alligators. And then she, he pushes the button and the carpenter says, you know, X always doesn't mark the spot. He falls down and sees that it's a fake alligator. And she says, yes, I know, but that's not the animal that's actually in that pit. And it turns out it's an electric eel. Batman then uh, confronts the carpenter and tells her, you know, you need to tell me the truth about what's going on. So she makes up the story to Batman, telling him that uh, she was taken hostage by these people, told to make these death traps, shows them a bunch of the drawings. Batman makes this comment about how he draws like a five-year-old and tells her, you know, thanks for the cooperation. Not saying that, but basically tells her, you've got 20 minutes to get out of Gotham, and I never want to see you again. As she's leaving Gotham, she gets a call from the broker, and the broker tells her that you know, he's got uh, Mr. Freeze just bought a skate rink, and he's looking to someone to make it uh, livable. And she says, uh, well, I guess, you know, I don't know about this. And he says, well, the Mr. Freeze is paying in diamonds. And she says, okay, after all, they are a girl's best friends, and that is the end. We then move into the uh, Manhunter co-feature, which very quickly Manhunter calls the apartment and soon realizes that uh, something's not right at the apartment. We cut to the apartment and see Ramsey uh, meeting who appears to be his mother, which is actually Jane Doe in the skin of Kate Spencer. Kate and Iron show up at the apartment very quickly. Uh, Kate gets up to the apartment, makes Jane Doe kind of freak out, and then uh, she tells Ramsey to use his powers. And Ramsey throws Kate Spencer into the wall, and in the meantime, her arm pops off. Uh, Jane Doe then rips off her face and says, Okay, if we're going to fight, let me get into my fighting clothes. And then she runs out into the hallway and thinks maybe she can get away when she runs into Iron uh, and Thor. Then she gets punched in the face by Kate Spencer, and that's pretty much the end of it. Then we have a nice little epilogue of them all of the family sitting around eating pizza, and Ramsey telling the story about how he took out Jane Doe. Then at the very end, we have Kate Spencer get us a phone call from Dick Grayson asking her if she wants to go out on a date, and she says yes. And that is the end of the Manhunter co-feature.
0: This is how I'll always remember you. Surrounded by winter, forever young, forever beautiful. Rest well, my love. The monster who took you from me will soon learn that revenge is a dish best served cold Azriel number nine written by fabian with artwork by ramon bach we open with Azrael surrounded by the members of the eight deadly sins under the church in paris where we last left off last issue he's being asked if he's ready to serve as the host for the resurrection of the eighth deadly sin of man reluctantly michael answers yes they then begin to brainwash him filling his head with why men are evil they then place a new mask on his face and tell him to rise he is the living embodiment of the black void of pure faith. He then turns and asks, where do we begin? They then all climb out from under the church and explain that they must wait. Suddenly, White Ghost comes jumping down and begins to fight Azrael and the others. While he puts up a fight, the group is able to leave him lying on the ground in pain. They then cut to White Ghost waking up in a plane where he sits with Adrian. Adrian explains that they plan to use Azrael to strike against mankind's face, so they are following we then cut to Vatican City, where Azrael and the others are tearing through the Vatican guards. Azrael goes into the Pope's bedroom when White Ghost comes down and challenges him. White Ghost convinces Michael to stop and to fight the madness. He also explains that Ra's al can help him stop the mad- madness that follows the suit of sorrows. Michael explains that he will not free himself of his sins until he has justice against the others. We then see Azrael and White Ghost executing several, mem- several members of the eight deadly sins. Michael then asks, White Ghost, what now? And White Ghost tells him to have faith. His time will come soon enough. And that is the end of Asriel number nine. Poison Ivy.
1: It's been a long time, Harvey. You're still looking halfway decent.
0: Half of me wants to strangle you.
1: And what does the other half want?
0: To hit you with a truck.
1: We used to date.
0: Ah. The end of Asriel number nine, but the beginning of Birds Prey number two. When we last left the birds, they were invested. Investigating that signal that was lit. It was the bad signal. They were investigating a signal that was lit and found a bloody, almost near-death penguin who had been put this way by someone called the White Canary who then proceeded to attack Huntress and Black Canary. And there was a threat going around that someone that the birds of prey knew would die every six hours and they had sent Oracle detailed stuff. The White Canary knows a lot of martial arts and makes very quick work of Huntress and Black Canary. They can't figure out what's going on with her, but they see in her eyes that there's lots of hate. Even Hawk and Dove, who show up, don't really turn the tide too much. Although, Hawk is really proud that he's able to rip a chunk of her hair out of her head. She leaves as the cops come, who are now after Black Canary. Why are they after Black Canary? Well, in the interim, Oracle saw on a news report that the terrorist who Black Canary fought last issue has died from his injuries, supposedly from the battle, but... There may be more to the story that we don't know yet. I'm thinking that this might be a white canary frame-up. In order to get away from the cops, the black canary and Huntress and Hawking and Dove are telling Oracle that they're going to have to use lethal force against them. Huntress is all too happy to be kicking them in the face and everything, shooting arrows through their hands, and the canary cry is even brought out. The promise about killing associates of the birds every 6 hours comes true when Creo calls Oracle saying that they killed Savants and that they're coming after everyone and that it's all because of her. Despite Oracle's protest, Creo then pulls a gun on himself and takes his own life, which deeply disturbs Oracle. The rest of the birds see on the news that because Black Canary is a fugitive, they're interviewing all these people from her life, including Sin who's supposed to be in an anonymous place they are going to publicly air her address and interview her about Black Canary's abandonment of her. Oracle pulls herself together and decides that she's going to have to use the network to fight back everything that's going on and we get the final splash page of the issue, Cliffhanger, where we see Oracle looking very determined with the screen of all these different heroes that I guess she's going to pull in to help fight this system. And that's the Cliffhanger for Birds of Prey issue 2.
1: Okay, everybody. Freeze! Hey, I wanted to say it.
0: Alright, and then
2: that's going to take us into Batman, The Return of Bruce Wayne, number three. So, we start off with a little flashback of Batman shooting Darkseid and experiencing the Omega Sanction. We then immediately cut to the shores of Gotham County... Where Blackbeard and his merry group of pirates has taken a man hostage, and he finds uh, Bruce Wayne and tells, and it automatically assumes that this man is actually a man known as the Black Pirate. He keeps calling him the Ghost, and uh, the entire time Bruce is trying to remember different things that have happened. In the past, he doesn't know how he got to where he's at. He has a f- brief memory of, you know, being a Puritan, you know, being in the Puritan era. And Blackbeard tells him that, you know, he has to be the Black Pirate. His ship crashed. His ship is safe and he must be here to collect the treasure from inside the Gotham County catacombs. He then tells Bruce Wayne that he will lead him to it, and Bruce then agrees only if he does not kill this man, Jack Loggins. Bruce then starts to lead him into the forest, where we start to see skulls that are stuck on stakes with bats wrapped around them, and Blackbeard keeps making these weird comments about how... This is a very interesting island. Lots of people must have been going for this treasure and they were very unsuccessful. Only this black pirate must know the way and that's why Bruce Wayne is leading them. We then get into the cave and we do see on the wall, we do see the symbols from issue one. As well as Final Crisis number seven, the Batman drew on the wall, and Bruce Wayne whistles, and these darts pop out of the wall and into the other side of the wall. They realize that this entire area is trap, you know, is full of traps by the Miogni people, which is also the Bat people. As they proceed on, uh, Bruce Wayne tells Blackbeard, you know, there's certain things we can't go down. We have to take a deep breath. Because very close there's bad droppings and the methane will kill you if you breathe it in. Put out your torches because the methane will burn us all. Then he says, don't step on any crooked rocks. And, of course, somebody does step on a rock and ends up getting shocked. We then cut to the present time where Batman and Robin are in spacesuits in Command-D, where Batman's body was discovered. And we then cut to the Justice League, where Wonder Woman is telling a bunch of members of the Justice League that we have to prepare for a possible rogue Batman once he comes back to the future. And the only way to do this is to partner with one of Batman's former partners, Red Robin. Then Red Robin explains that uh, they did find a Nomex fire-resistant fabric Kevlar hood with built-in electronics, and it obviously survived 11,000 years, which means Bruce Wayne was 11,000 years into the past. We then cut back to Batman and Damian who see the machine that the decoy Batman was attached to and they are telling themselves, you know, he got out of this. When Damian mentions, you know, should we get back to the Joker? Dick then proceeds to say, you know, he got out, he shot and wounded a god. Uh, cue the Omega Sanction just like Superman suspected, bam, history. We then cut back to the past where Bruce Wayne is leading these pirates through the caves This man, Jack, takes Bruce aside, and Bruce says the year is 1718, and the man reveals that he is actually Jack Valor. He is the Black Pirate. He was the captain of the Black Rose, the ship that crashed. His grandfather was the first Black Pirate, and he just followed his lead. Then Blackbeard approaches them and says, Why are you whispering? What are you doing? And Bruce actually falls off after grabbing the Black Pirate uh, garb, falls off the cliff into the river. Then Blackbeard says, you know, that must be the way to the treasure because there's a bridge of bones. When suddenly, out of nowhere, batarangs and bat darts are flying at the pirates and they're dropping like flies. Bats fly out of nowhere and start screeching violently. Blackbeard is telling them, you know, you know, we must move on, we must move on, get to the treasure, this must be a curse. And, uh, the entire time Jack Valor's telling everybody this is the curse of the Black Pirate, he's coming to make sure that you never get the treasure. Then we see Bruce Wayne wrapped in the Black Pirate's garb, which is basically a cape. It's basically the same thing... Imagine Red Robin, what Red Robin wears without the red. Just the, you know, dark cape, dark mask, and round. That's basically what it looks like, only it's blue. And Blackbeard shoots at him which does nothing, and Bruce takes out Blackbeard very easily. The men all get taken out by the Miagni men, and Jack Eller then tells Blackbeard that he has been friends with the Miagni men, and he made a big mistake uh, messing with him, who's the Black Pirate, and he's been friends with the Miagni men for a very long time, and he's actually lived in some of his caves for a point in time. Blackbeard and his first mate get pushed off into the river, and... Then Bruce Wayne is led off by the Miyagi-Men to see his cape from years and years ago. And all of these Miyagi-Men, these Bat-People, are actually... They know that he is actually the person that they've worshipped all this time. And the reason why is because they are all descendants of the first boy, which is the boy that Batman saved... In the very first issue of Return of Bruce Wayne. Batman then grabs his uh, utility belt and walks out and tells Jack Valor a number of different things that he needs to be passed on. Clips comes and Bruce Wayne disappears. We then see a little excerpt of uh, Jack Valor telling how he continued to be the Black Pirate for a while until he met a woman, got married, and eventually went to the town of Gotham. And broke down everything that he had and put it in a casket, a small casket with, that had a bat symbol on it. Then we cut to sometime in the future, we assume the 1800s, mid-1800s, where there's these two men going to a house and they meet up with Jonah Hex. And these men are telling him that there's somebody who is very, very good at getting rid of people, plaguing them. And they ask Jonah Hex to take out this guy because Jonah Hex is the best. And it turns out the man that they want Jonah Hex to take out is none other than Bruce Wayne. And that is the end of Batman The Return of Bruce Wayne number 3.
0: Looks like a slow night, Alfred. When I finish patrolling this area, I'm heading home. Excellent timing, Master Bruce. I've just taken dinner out of the oven. Looks like trouble at Tarn Hour Financial, Alfred. I won't be home early after all. <sighs> Please don't take this the wrong way, sir, that your goose is cooked. Now, another return of Denny O'Neill. We seem to have those uh, every year or so. This is Detective Comics number 866. Denny O'Neill is back, but he didn't bring back the veil. Thank goodness. As Dustin was mentioning earlier, this is one of those stories where we get a flashback in the middle. We start off with the Dick Grayson version of Batman. He's going by this mansion, which is completely decayed now, and he... Uh, you know, fights some thugs and finds a medallion underneath the floorboards. Apparently, this medallion has a very long history, and we get a flashback, and the art for this flashback's really, really good. It looks like a cross between Batman, the animated series, and maybe something that you'd see during the Silver Age. The Joker had robbed this mansion during one of Dick's first nights out as Robin, when he was still kind of on probation. He wasn't allowed to leave the Batmobile during certain portions of the patrol. Well, the Joker is robbing this medallion from the place, and one of Daniel O'Neill's favorite things, the Order of St. Demas, which is what the Jean-Paul Valley Asriel, another pet character of Daniel O'Neill's, was a part of. They're all involved with this with the medallion, so this crazy sword guy who's an enforcer of St. DeMoss is fighting the Joker. Batman comes into the mansion, tells Robin that he needs to stay in the Batmobile and out of trouble. Joker leaves during the ruckus between Batman and this crazy enforcer guy. Robin trails him, even though he wasn't supposed to, and the Joker bumps into this guy, who we later find out his name is Loomis, in the middle of the street, and puts the medallion in the guy's pockets. Robin is able to surprise the Joker, take him from behind, and actually knock him out, you know, which is not bad for, at this point of Dick Grayson's career. Loomis looks very, very suspicious in that part of the neighborhood, so he's questioned, and the cops find the medallion, which Loomis doesn't know how he he had, so he's taken away. So is the Joker and the crazy enforcer guy, but due to a crash of the police car both of them get away so I'm guessing that if Danny O'Neil ever decides to revisit some more of this order of St. Dumas stuff he'll be back. Loomis was put on trial and Harvey Dent was the prosecutor and nobody believed his story about the Joker just putting this thing in his pocket so he was in jail for many many years uh, finally got out on good behavior and rented a room near where he was arrested and he's dying the Dick Grayson version of Batman visits him, saying that he found the medallion and that he's going to go clear him. Later on, when Dick goes back to Loomis's apartment, he sees the Joker walking away, but it's far enough a distance that he can't tell. He decides to check inside Loomis's apartment to tell him that he's been cleared, that everything's going to be alright, and that now that the medallion's found, his innocence is, will be proven, but he sees Loomis dead with a big Joker smile on his face as the last panel is pitch black with the Joker's laugh, ha 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 ha. <laughs> <laughs>
2: All right, so that is all of our reviews. Let's get into our review wrap-up. First up, The Joker's Asylum, Mad Hatter. I gotta say, I found it to be a very simple story. Not very much to it, but uh, the art. I'm not a fan of uh, crazy art, as some of you may know. I don't really like Frank Quietly's work all that much. But for some reason, this art fit. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was because it was the Mad Hatter, I don't know. But like this art, I really found really good. I don't think it was a great story. I think it was a very average story. But uh the art the art worked for me, so I'm gonna give it three out of five batterings.
0: I'm gonna give it two and a half out of five batterings. It had really good art but The story barely interests me. Oh, the Mad Hatter wants this person to be his Alice or whatever. And these Joker Asylum things, they're kind of pointless, in my opinion. They don't really do that much new or interesting with the villains. It's just kind of a reintroduction of who they are. These books kind of seem redundant, but the art was good enough for it to earn two and a half out of five batterings for me. I wasn't all that impressed with the story. It was really a typical Mad Hatter story. I did think, though, that it kind of did capture the the psyche of Jervis Tetch and what drives him to be the Mad Hatter. I also thought the artwork was really good. It really fit the style and the tone of the story. And that's no surprise when it was done by Keith Giffen and Bill Sienkiewicz, uh, two, two legends. But I'll give this three out of five batterings.
2: All right, so that's going to give Joker's Asylum, Mad Hatter. Three out of five batterings. <laughs> Moving on to Joker's Asylum Harley Quinn. Again, very simple story. Not much to it, but then again, that's becoming a very common trend with uh, these Joker's Asylum stories. They're not supposed to get very in-depth. They're not supposed to make you want, you know... <laughs> Really, they're not supposed to be uh, making us want more after it's all said and done. With that being said, I did find the art to be okay. A very uh, reminiscent of the animated series, as well as most incarnations of Harley Quinn. But nothing spectacular, so this one I'm only going to give 2 out of 5 rings
0: I, hmm, the framing sequence with the Joker and, oh, want to see this puppy dog I have? Want to know what I'm going to do to him? oh, you're going to have to wait till the end of the story, and then the payoff was, uh, oh, it's a dangerous puppy dog, surprise! And then some of the stuff in there, like Batman saying, oh, Harley, you know, I couldn't fight you today because you'd probably beat me because you're that determined of a woman... I thought that that was a little off, and then I I thought that it was funny the first time they did the whole, oh, what are you going to do, use one of your wacky things on me, and then she uses a gun. I thought that was funny, but then they kept on reusing the joke. They kind of lost me with it. This story had a few things wrong with it, so I'm just going to have to give it two out of five batterings. Yeah, I was not impressed with this story, Either it was really cliche and cheesy and really campy, which can be good at times, but it wasn't so good at this time. But the artwork was really good. I'll give this two out of five batterings.
2: So that's gonna give Joker's asylum, Harley Quinn, two out of five batterings. Batman: Streets of Gotham number thirteen, conclusion of the Carpenter story. You know, I think the Carpenter's a uh, cool or an interesting character in conjunction with the Broker because. You know, by themselves, I don't think they'd be very interesting. But the fact that somehow they seem to be working together in different situations is is interesting. You know, this they could basically form you know this little team where they accommodate the villains, and that's what they do. Interesting to a point. I don't know how much I think in a supporting role she could be good. I don't think she can carry a story on her own. I'm not real sure what the point of having that little two-minute excerpt like the three page little parts where alfred's having this board meeting with tommy elliott and all of these heroes for a couple reasons one the outsiders are not in gotham city and i don't know why they included them in gotham city because they haven't been in gotham city for issues and issues and issues but we don't cover outsiders anymore so that's irrelevant so i don't know why the outsiders would be there considering they're not part of Batman's they're not Batman's team anymore so I'm not sure why that was there I'm also not sure why I needed to know that Rex Mason wants to go find some Cougars and Panthers don't get that but the Carpenter story overall the ending it was pretty good not the best I can't complain about the art I like Dustin Lynn's art it's not too clean but it's not too uh, messy either so I'm going to give this one three out of five batarangs Um, as for the co-feature utter crap I'm completely glad it's over. One out of five bad rings.
0: Yeah, I'm with you on the co-feature. So, early on, they had this idea to kind of keep Tommy Elliott around because they couldn't really touch him. He was dressed as Bruce Wayne. There'd be too much suspicions. But at this point, it's just dumb writing. It's just like a big plot hole. Hey, we can't arrest Tommy Elliott because, you know... And lock him away because he's dressed as Bruce Wayne. And people might get suspicious if Bruce Wayne's not around. Uh, Oh, well, let's have all these shapeshifters and illusionists follow him. So why don't you just lock Tommy Elliott up again, use your money to get his face switched back, and have one of the like shapeshifters or illusionists pretend to be Bruce Wayne. There's no reason for them to be letting Tommy Elliott run free. At this point, it's stupid writing. But even though it's stupid writing, that was what I was more interested about in the book than this whole broker thing. You know, it's, they, it's an interesting concept for a character, a bit silly, but her story didn't really grab me as much. Like I said, I'm with Dustin on the backup. I'm, I'm over it. I'm going to give this uh, three out of five Batarangs. Almost, it almost seemed like Paul Dini forgot that the Outsiders were a part of this book and just uh, threw them in here just so it seemed like he didn't forget about them. But yeah, overall, I was not... I'm not a big fan of this whole Carpenter, the director thing, but I thought this issue was okay, and I liked the ending in where he could be taking this, I guess, and the artwork was really good as usual, so I can't complain about Dustin Gwynn. Um, three out of five batterings.
2: All right, so Batman Streets of Gotham number 13 is going to get three out of five batterings. Moving on to Asriel number nine. All right, now, from a story point of view, I thought the story was okay. I didn't have any main issues with the story. Art as usual is is pure crap. I have no desire to even look at this book. But if I listen to nothing but the summary of the book, it actually sounds like it could be interesting. Michael Lane goes off and tries to basically off the Pope. That could be interesting. The fact that Razel Ghoul and White Ghost are going to be playing larger roles and possibly more important roles and possibly more prevalent roles to bring Michael Lane somehow back into the Batman universe. That can be interesting. I am interested to see where uh, David Hine takes this character. But the only way I could ever see this book being successful is if they get Ramon Box off the book. And I don't know why he's still on the book. He wasn't good on Red Robin. He lasted, I think, five issues before they got rid of him. And I don't know why. And I thought the only reason why they, they took him off because he sucked. In reality, they took him off so he could be on this book which he still sucks on, please, somebody just get him off the book. He, there's a certain genre of comics that he is meant to draw, and it's not what this is. So, I mean, story-wise, good. Art, crap. So, the story's not good enough to give it a better score than 2 out of 5 batterings.
0: Yeah, I'm going to say 1 out of 5 Batarangs, because I don't think that the story was as good as Dustin does. Trying to kill the Pope, I mean, again, this, you know, weird religion as quasi-stuff. There is a disconnect between the art and the story. The style for it doesn't feel like the type of mooting that you should be getting from a story like this, although the story is junk anyway, so I should probably be expecting junk art. But somehow, junk art and a junk story don't seem to be jiving with each other, even in a junky way. So I'm going to have to say one out of five Batarangs. Yeah, Dustin touched on it in his review. It's not that Ramon Box is a terrible artist. It's that he is not, his style does not fit books like Red Robin or Asriel. He shouldn't be drawing superhero comics. That's really what it is. And for me, I didn't think that there were, there are always aspects in these issues of Asriel that are interesting, but it just seems to, I just never get too involved and I'm just kind of trying to make it through the issue. So it's really a typical issue. If there was an artist change, I might be able to enjoy this a little more, but there isn't. So the art is no good as usual. One out of five batterings for me.
2: Okay, and over on the website, one of our new reviewers, Wes, reviewed it and also gave it a one out of five batterings. So that's going to give Ezreal number nine one out of five batterings. <laughs> Moving on to Birds of Prey number two. I did find it interesting that uh, Gail Simone brought back Savant and Crete because we hadn't seen them since before she. Well, actually, we haven't seen them since Birds of Prey number 108, which has been quite a long time ago. I believe that's probably about three years ago. They did appear at some point in Secret 6, but again, that's because of Gail Simone. But uh, I did find it interesting. I'm. I do want to know who this uh, white canary is. All signs to me are pointing towards uh, like Lady Shiva, possibly. You know, she's got the look. Could be her. Who knows? It's definitely not Cassandra Kane like some people were guessing at the end of the last issue. So I'm not sure at this point why they were guessing in the first
0: place. They were hoping. The they were hoping. Yeah. They,
2: yeah. yeah. Uh, Ed Benes' art, as usual. We
0: aren't. We are but, not hoping. We don't need another Cassandra Cain turns evil story. It took us, like, three years or four years to, like, you know, finally wrap up the last one.
2: So, Edmundus' art as usual, very good. No complaints there. Uh, so, overall, I'm going to give this three and a half out of five batterings.
0: I'm going to give it four out of five batterings. Big improvement from last issue because we didn't have that whole Lifetime television original movie thing of the girls all crying, you know, because they were back together and looking at how pretty the moon is. You know, it was much, you know, more straight action stuff. Uh, killing off Savant and Creo, that was a good way of showing that the stakes are raised, that they're going to be killing off, you know, even former members of the Birds of Prey, because I guess Savant was kind of an unofficial member of the Birds of Prey for a little while. Curious about who this White Canary is, but I'm go- I'm thinking it's a new character, because we had lots of close-ups on this person's face, even though their mouth was covered. I think that if it was Shiva, Black Canary, or someone would have recognized her. I don't know, but uh, it's... It's really interesting, and I like Black Canary using her canary cry against the cops. I think that Gail Simone is, you know, stepping up, making the story, you know, get better, and Ed Benes's art is out of the park, so four out of five batterings. Yes, this issue really, for me, picked up the pace after kind of a slow, uninteresting first issue, and was really, really improved. Ed Benes' artwork really good, as usual. I'll give this three out of five batterings.
2: And Zayas on the website gave it four out of five batarangs as well. So that's gonna give Birds of Prey number two, three and a half out of five batarangs. Alright, so moving into the next book we've got. Batman The Return of Bruce Wayne, number three. Couple things. I did think it was uh I did think this issue was much better than number two, one because it was a little easier to understand the the words being used, and obviously, as that goes on as we get closer to Bruce Wayne being in present time, that'll obviously get easier. The art wasn't as distracting as in the last book it was. I found the art in the last book to be very distracting. this one it fit perfectly, no issues whatsoever with the art. um I thought it was actually very good. I thought the pirates were drawn very well, and honestly. This is, it's not, like, I don't want to, like, downplay his work in this book, but uh, Yannick, I think the last page where he drew the, you know, drew Bruce in the bat cowboy costume was actually pretty good, so hopefully we see something better than what Yannick did in this issue because otherwise they might have picked the wrong guy to do issue number four. I didn't see the guy Jack becoming the pirate until about page ten after I realized why is he the only one still alive from the ship. And it made sense. The other thing that I did like very much was the fact that instead of having the crazy Superman and all the Time Masters trying to, you know, talking to that crazy computer that, in my opinion, didn't make any, didn't look like really anything but a bunch of jarbled pencil lines in the last issue, they actually had, you know, a small flashback from the actual. time that the omega sanction happens as well as the uh scene where wonder woman's telling the justice league you know they have to prepare for bruce wayne to come back i thought this was a good issue i got no complaints four or five batterings
0: i like that they're moving this in a different direction than bruce just time jumping in the jla being oh man just missed him like there's kind of some race stakes and they're bringing tim drake into it to play an important role which is really important because it's kind of disappointing that after all that talk about tim drake you know uh trying to prove that bruce was alive i mean his role in it wasn't really as big as it should have been so i'm hoping that his role in bruce's return gets bigger which it looks like they're doing something like that i am happy about that the R was okay but nothing too spectacular to look at but it the series is definitely uh going places that i didn't think it would when it first started so i'm gonna give it three and a half out of five batterings. i felt like that this has been the strongest chapter so far. I thought that Morrison, we know now that he knows where he's going with all of this and that it started to piece things together a little bit better. I thought Yannick Paguette was probably, he's been probably the best artist that has fit his time period. The best so far in these first three issues. And, you know, there was no problem like there was last issue with trying to figure out who was talking. Um, The only thing about the art was, is I thought Yannick Paquette did a really poor job of drawing Dick Grayson as Batman in some of some of those panels. It was a little odd looking, but um, other than that, I thought Morrison did a really good job of making sense, and this was a lot of, a really enjoyable issue. So for me, I'll give this four out of five batterings.
2: And on the website, another one of our new reviewers, Hayes Stronaut, gave Batman: The Return of Bruce Wayne number three five out of five batterings. So, Batman The Return of Bruce Wayne, number three, gets four out of five Batarangs. Moving into our very last book, Detective Comics, number 866. Denny O'Neill does an excellent job. He did a very good job at not confusing Batman, the voice of Batman. And I say that meaning, you know, Denny O'Neill obviously knows how to do Bruce Wayne as Batman. But the real question going into this was, can he do Dick Grayson as Batman and not make it seem... Like two-issue story arc that happened in Batman Street Gotham earlier this year where it was clearly a Batman Bruce Wayne story, not a Batman Dick Grayson story. Can he do that? I think he did. I think this was a very good one-off issue. There was nothing like remotely super special about it, but it was a good story, good one-off. And I think Danny O'Neill did a very, very good job at making Dick Grayson his own Batman. The art, again, nothing nothing wrong with that. So I'm going to give this uh, 4 out of 5 batterings.
0: I'm going to say 3 out of 5 Batarangs. Uh, I wasn't surprised that Danny O'Neill got the voice of Dick Grayson down, Pat, because Danny O'Neill's been, love him or hate him, he's been with this character for a long time. And he was even around when last time dick was in the cowl around prodigal uh, daniel O'Neill was the group editor of the books then and i believe he may have filled in an issue or two of prodigal i don't remember off the top of my head but he was definitely around overseeing things i love how the flashback uh, was drawn differently than the rest of the stuff but there was some forgettable stuff there, like, you know, the, the whole thing about the medallion. I didn't really... Who cares about the You know, Daniel O'Neill brought in his love for the old Asriel mythology with St. Dumas, and I really didn't care about that, and I felt like it almost didn't have a place here, and that he was setting up for, like, another story that he wanted to tell, which is why it goes from 5 out of 5 batterings to 3 out of 5 batterings for me. I felt like he got Dick's voice really well, which isn't that surprising to me, but to me what this issue really did was it showcased the two completely different styles of artwork and I I felt like the basic plot wasn't that interesting, but what happened within the confines of that plot I thought was pretty good. I thought he did a pretty a pretty good job for a guy who sometimes I'm not exactly sure about, but I'll give this three and a half out of five batterings.
2: And on the website uh, one of our reviewers, Dane give it 5 out of 5 batterings. So that's going to give Detective Comics number 866 four out of 5 Batarangs. You may have noticed that we missed actually three books. We missed Superman Batman number 73, Joker's Asylum Killer Croc and Batman Arkham Asylum Madness. The first two, the Joker's Asylum and Superman Batman, we just weren't able to get before we did recorded this podcast. And the Batman Arkham Asylum Madness, we're gonna talk about that in a later episode when we have some more time. Since it is, you know, a longer book. I don't want to spend 30 minutes reviewing the book and then 30 minutes giving a summary of the book. It'll just be easier to have a discussion when we have time when there's not as many comics to cover in down the line. So with those comics being said, uh, that's all the comics we've got. And let's throw it over to Nick with Bat Books for Beginners.
1: Hello there and welcome to another edition of Bat Books for Beginners with me, Nick. Today I'm looking at A Death in the Family which was originally published in 1988. It's written by Jim Stalin who wrote the last book I reviewed, Batman the Cult. The art is provided by the late Jim Aparo who's worked on Detective, Batman and Legends of the Dark Knight series. Now this book follows on from The Killing Joke and The Cult, where Bruce has been through a very tough time, with the Joker crippling Barbara Gordon, and Bruce also losing his mind in the last story in The Cult. Surely things will get a little bit easier from now on.
0: He's losing it, Alfred. Jason's been on a death wish. I have to take him off duty.
2: How long have you been there?
0: Long enough.
2: I've made my decision, and we need to talk about your parents. Talk to Alfred. I found my mother using a back computer.
0: My name is Sheila Haywood. I should tell Bruce, but he'd never understand.
1: I have to do this on my own. Then the plot of death in the family. Jason is out of control as Robin. He dives into a fight with no consideration for his own well-being. Bruce becomes concerned and after talking to Alfred decides to force Robin to stop performing duties as Robin until he can sort out his own personal problems which seem to concern his parents. Meanwhile, the Joker has escaped from Arkham Asylum since he was incarcerated there for the attack on Barbara Gordon. And the Joker decides there's too much heat on him and flees the country. Jason bumps into an old family friend in Crime Alley who has some items from his old household. Jason discovers his mother was not actually his real mum, but his stepmum. He uses his back computer to find three women who could be his real mother, and they're all abroad. He flees Wayne Manor. After an adventure in Beirut, Jason narrows the search for his mother down to two after meeting one of the women. Batman and Robin then travel elsewhere in Lebanon to track down the second woman, who turns out to be Lady Shiva. After a big fight, we learn she also has had no children, leaving one woman left, Sheila Hayward. She works in Ethiopia, and we see her as she's getting greeted by the Joker, who clearly has a history with her. Joker says he will ruin her current happy life by telling her employers her past unless she helps him. She reluctantly agrees. Jason and Bruce arrive at a refugee camp in Ethiopia. Jason has an emotional reunion with his mum, Sheila Hayward, who is working there. Sheila leaves her son for a while to meet the Joker who has a convoy of poison gas trucks prepared, intending to kill many local people thanks to Sheila's help. Jason listens in secretly to this information and rushes to tell Bruce. Bruce decides to take his own mini helicopter with space for only one person to track the convoy that is left, leaving Jason behind, warning him not to take on the Joker alone. Jason, of course, does so anyway to protect his mother. He finds his mother and and reveals to her that he is Robin. Sheila lures Jason into a warehouse and the Joker attacks him, savagely beating him. Bruce, meanwhile, has stopped the convoy and sorted out the situation with the poison gas. He rushes back to Jason, hoping everything was okay, but feeling that it might not be. The Joker leaves the warehouse, with an unconscious Jason on the floor, and ties up Sheila, setting a bomb. The clock ticks down, and even though Jason and his mother attempt to escape, the bomb goes off. Bruce, in a rush to reach them, isn't quick enough, and sees the explosion, screaming, Jason. Batman rushes through the remains of the destroyed warehouse and finds the bodies of Sheila and Jason both dead. A funeral is held in Gotham and Bruce tells Alfred he doesn't want any help anymore out of guilt for Jason. The Joker in, meanwhile is asked to attend a business proposition by the Iranian government. Joker leaves Batman a message in Ethiopia that he will see him at the United Nations. Batman arrives at the United Nations and Superman joins him warning him to leave telling him he can't do anything about the situation. Batman asks what he is talking about, and Joker arrives as the new ambassador for Iran at the UN. Superman has been ordered to ensure Batman does nothing to the Joker because he now has diplomatic immunity. Batman storms off. The Joker at the UN assembly gives a little speech about Iran and then releases a poisonous gas. Superman arrives and inhales the gas, leaving everyone safe. The Joker then flees to a helicopter with Batman pursuing in rage. They fight on board the helicopter. The Joker is shot. Batman jumps off and the helicopter explodes. The Joker's body is not found. As things always end between Batman and the Joker, this one is unresolved. Todd was cursed with writing that made him seem bitter, arrogant and disagreeable at times to a large majority of comic book readers, and this writing never did him much justice. Had he been as mature and brave as Dick Grayson or Tim Drake, it's likely DC would never have taken the phone voting gamble, allowing readers to vote on Jason Todd's outcome, life or death. But Todd was just too obnoxious to live, I think. So, unfortunately, he died horribly at the hands of the Joker. It's a big, bold decision that DC made. I thought that in this book particular, Jason Todd again was slightly immature. He dived into the fighting. He wanted to drink a rum and coke, even though he was underage. He didn't thank Bruce for the stuff Bruce Bruce has provided for him. And he felt quite childish. I did feel that the moments where we were finding out about the two other women, who may possibly be his mother, felt a bit fillerish. It was just batman and robin on some quest across the middle east didn't really make much sense to the story quite boring really i thought everything was generally intriguing though until the moments with iran and iran and america had some problems at the time and the fact that they had to make joker a ambassador was a bit over the top i thought they were trying to make the Joker even more evil than he already was. I mean, he just killed a teenager. I don't think we needed him to be even worse. But um, it felt a little bit clumsy making Joker involved with Iran, just because of the political situation at the time, and it kind of dates the book as well. We didn't need the Joker to dress up in America's mortal enemy at the time. Was a little bit of overkill, I thought. I thought Bruce's grief throughout the book was felt very well by the reader. It wasn't over the top. It was quite subtle. Clearly... Bruce had a lot to deal with, and I think it came across well. I think the book could have done with a little more character exploration, particularly with Jason Todd and Bruce, um, rather than filling it with the the quest across the Middle East filler stuff. I think they were afraid to make the book too depressing and emotional, so they had to put in a few silly adventures with the other potential mothers of Jason Todd. The moment when Jason dies is truly quite epic and chilling, and when bruce is carrying jason's body it's really has a lot of impact i think it was done very well i thought the art was quite old school not necessarily in a bad way it depends on your taste but generally as art goes i thought it was okay nothing special you know they had the blue uh, batman with the blue cape Um, It was a little bit cartoony i thought the joker had an excessively large head for instance not brilliant but okay I thought the conclusion was a little bit short-changed. There's a short fight between Batman and Joker, but Batman just looks a little unhappy at the end, and we know the Joker has escaped, even though they don't find his body, simply because they can't kill their best villain. Um, so it's a bit of a dead end for the conclusion. And so, and you think that it just couldn't possibly happen where the Joker is actually killed by Batman, since just it would ruin the future of the books. But the impact of this story stretches through many Batman books in the future, and... They could have maybe spent more time on Jason's Todd character, learning a bit more about him since he was probably going to die, rather than the terrorists and the political issues such as the starvation in Ethiopia and political issues with Iran and the adventures with the other mothers. So a bit more time on Jason Todd since this was really all about him would have been nicer. So all in all, it's a little bit retro, uh, this book. Not as groundbreaking as something like Year One, but still an important milestone in the Batman books, with some really great moments. Um, morally char- challenging, and I credit DC for doing such a bold story and killing a teenager, something I would not have expected them to do at the time. So I will be giving it four out of five Batarangs. <laughs> Jason! Jason! So that was the historic uh, death in the family, a big moment in Batman's career. I hope you enjoyed my review. Next time I'll be looking at Arkham Asylum, a serious house on a serious earth, where Batman is told that the patients have overtaken the asylum. How will Batman resolve the mess? Find out next time. Of course, you can always get in touch with us via the Batman Universe forums on our website, thebatmanuniverse.net. You can always email me, nick, at thebatmanuniverse.net. If you have some comments or or questions, or you'd like to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate it, so I would really love to get some emails from you guys. So that is Bat Books for Beginners for this time, and look forward to next time. And spare a thought for the boy who was never given a chance... Until we meet again, Jason Todd.
2: Alright, so that was Bat Books for Beginners. Moving into our upcoming releases for the next two weeks, the very first thing we've got on July 8th, we have Batman Robin, number 13, Batman Confidential, number 46, Batman Odyssey, number 1, Red Hood, Lost Days, number 2, and Red Robin, number 14. Moving on to July 14th, we have Batgirl, number 12, Batgirl, Batgirl Rising, Batman, number 701, and Birds of Prey, number 3. So that's all we've got for that. As far as what we will be covering on the next episode, we'll be covering for sure Superman Batman, number 73, and Joker's Asylum Killer Croc. We will also be covering Batman Beyond, number 1, Gotham City Sirens, number 13, Joker's Asylum Clayface, and then we will also be doing Batman Robin, number 13, if it does not get delayed again, Batman Confidential, number 46, Batman Odyssey, number 1. And Red Hood, Lost Days, number two, and Red Robin, number 14. So a decent amount of books in the next cast as well. Yeah, I know. With that being said, that's pretty much everything. As usual, you can head over to the website for daily news. You can join the forums. If you're unable to join the forums, make sure you send us an email and let us know that you can't get in. We'll make sure to go in and activate your account. You can leave us a review on iTunes. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube and YouTube is actually one of the places you should be checking out, it's specifically around Comic Con because we will be posting all of our videos from Comic Con on YouTube. And then onto the website. Comic-Con is just around the corner. We will have one more episode before Comic-Con. Hopefully the uh, announcements for what is going to be happening for Comic-Con is announced before that episode. Either way, there is one more episode you'll get before uh, we get into Comic-Con, which is less than a month away. It's getting close. And Apple, myself, and Josh will all be there covering all the latest news about the Batman universe. And lastly, and of course not least, you can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net with any questions, comments, or concerns. So that's everything for this episode. So this is Dustin.
0: You got Josh.
2: And this is Zach. And you've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next
0: time. Bye. Adios. there's this girl that I graduated with who has been reading all of, my, all of my trade paperbacks and stuff, all these Batman ones, and I've been giving her like these lists of books, and she just texts me saying, I decided I don't like Batman, I just like the villains. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what, that, that's, just, there's, there's a lot of Batman fans that. like that. Yeah, She's like, what Batman does is easy. He... No. He always wins, yet the villains have the tenacity to keep trying. <laughs> no, Batman okay. nev- Batman will never win until crime from Gotham is gone forever. Batman's the one fighting the futile battle cuz he can never he can never rid Gotham of the crime. He can never do what his mission is.
2: Right. It's just like in Dark Knight, you know, the Gotham always needs a Batman.
0: Right. Yeah. Apparently, like, without me, Zach is a calm person or something, he was saying. He's like, oh, Josh gets me all riled up. It in the bloopers. Yeah, I know. Uh, you, you provoke me. With you what? With your ridiculous comment.
2: Whatever. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I, I just want to make sure that... We're all aware that we're trying to be clean, clean. That's our
0: label, clean. I know not... we have a hard time doing that sometimes, but... I know, I know. <laughs> we, I this think it's should... more than any other. Yeah. This should be uh, more than... This should be the whole blooper section, like you saying what words we can't say, and then just bleep, bleep, bleep. In my defense, I, think... I said bleep because it was essential to the storyline. And I think you should do a blooper show for the regular cast, and then do a blooper show just... From Comic Cast. We'll see what blooper show is better.
2: Well, I can't imagine <laughs> considering I don't even get like hard I get like maybe one minute of bloopers oh, for like, the normal cast. Yeah. I just had We might have to wait like three years before we have enough material for a normal <laughs> cast blooper show. I've I could I could do one every six episodes with this cast.